Welcome to Street Smart Success. This is Roger Becker, your host. Over 25 years ago, you had to send your loved one to a nursing home if they could no longer care for themselves. But today, you can send them to an assisted living facility with a much more current approach to lower level care. This area of housing has continued to increase in demand. The population is aging and more seniors need assistance with day-to-day functions they can no longer perform at home. Today's guest, Justin Burke, is building a portfolio of assisted living facilities in the upper Midwest. So today we have with us quite a gentleman, and I can say that only because we had the privilege to meet in person a few weeks ago at a real estate conference in Minneapolis put together by a mutual colleague. And uh, this is a guy that's done a lot of different things, is doing a lot of different things, and of late pivoting towards the booming assisted living space. And I've been so excited to talk to Justin Burke, commercial real estate investor and broker. Justin, welcome to Street Smart Success. Yeah, thanks, Roger, for having me on. Yeah, you got it. And uh, you probably thought that introduction was never going to (laughs) end. Well, it's a little hard to nail down, though. What do you do for a living question? So as for, as for, for me. <laughs> I got it. No, but I just go on and on. I love hamming it up. Anyway, yeah. so so Justin, are you, you know, you're in the Twin Cities and I, I know you've been there a long time. My question is, have you been there your whole life? And if so, you know, what part of town, what was growing up like? I have not. I've actually been here longer than anywhere else that I've been. But growing up, I was actually born in the Denver, Colorado area and uh, moved I think I was eight years old. We moved back to the farm that my father and grandfather had both grown up on. So I grew up on a farm that my great-grandfather bought in 1932. And my grandpa farmed it and uh, or grew up there and farmed it. My dad and his brothers and sisters grew up there. And we moved back. And my grandpa passed in 1989. And uh, my parents took over the farm that my grandparents had been running. So I grew up there, you know, about third grade through high school and headed off to college to play football mostly. <laughs> and uh, I, so I played five years of division three college football. And my goal was always to coach and which I did uh, at the college level for 15 years. And then in that time, I kind of on the side, I had been working in real estate and building a career in real estate and moving towards some kind of investment portfolio as, as far as was the end goal. Where was slash is this farm? Northern Illinois. Northern Illinois. And you're saying yeah. your great, your great grandfather bought in 32, which yeah. what's interesting is that somehow he managed to survive the, the brutal depression. I, I think it's in my blood. We just buy when blood's in the streets. It's just natural for, for the Burks. So that's what he did. And um, I've, I've heard the stories my grandma's told about when they moved in and it was, it wasn't in great shape. It was kind of a mess. And they moved in in the winter and in the middle of an ice storm, uh, kind of an interesting deal. And so you and your parents, are you saying you moved in like 89? Is that what you said? Yeah. 86. My grandpa passed three years later. 
I see. And so when you grew up on a farm, and it's just interesting to me because I grew up in like suburbs and had everything pretty much handed to me. I, you know, probably didn't feel like it at the time, but in hindsight, you know, I didn't have to do anything. Okay. Uh, and so I guess my question is, were you as a kid, you know, middle school, high school, early, you know, you hear these stories of waking up at four in the morning and feeding animals. I mean, is that what you did? I am lucky enough to have not had to do that. <laughs> I had cousins that were ran a dairy farm. We had a grain farm, so it was corn and soybeans. So uh, at, at times I had to, I did miss school once or twice to plow when we really had to go or, you know, disc stocks or whatever and be in the field. So, but it, it was all field work or sometimes we're shoveling grain out of a bin into a truck, uh, things like that. I see. So, there's still work involved, but I'm I'm glad I didn't, you know, the dairy, the dairy farm grind, I did not have to do. Got it. Okay. And so I guess that, that may have uh, given you more time and, and, and leeway to play football, which my question yeah. is then what school, what position? I played safety and played at Carroll College in Waukesha, Wisconsin. Got it. And so is a, do they have in football, they just have varsity and that's it? Or are there other stratas? I pardon the ignorant yeah. question. Yeah, no, there's a varsity program. And then they, you generally get some JV games where you can Got for it. guys that don't play varsity. And so in, in your intention after that experience was to coach, you did. Uh, and uh, where did you coach and where did you live? Yeah, so I coached at Carleton College here in Minnesota, Northfield, Minnesota, for two years and ended up getting a job at University of Northwestern here in Minnesota also, not Northwestern in Evanston. Uh, again, Division three school here in Minnesota and coached there for 13 years. You know, that's that's like really, I don't know, strikes me as incredibly impressive, that length of tenure. And then I guess, was it to your point earlier during that time that you started dabbling in real estate? And if so, what were you doing? Yeah, I I mean, the story is kind of when I, in my first years in coaching, I started learning about, you know, the entire progression of the industry and coaches in order to make a lot of money. You, you need to really get to a high level and you need to pay a lot of dues and make very little to no money. And a lot of them went into substantial debt and worked in bad situations and things like that. And I, I just thought there had to be a better way. And so in, in the off season of my, you know, first few years, the off seasons, I, I ended up, you know, I had to work somewhere and I just ended up working as a mobile closer for a title company. And so I, I, I was all of a sudden in real estate. That's just <laughs> where I got a job. And so I ended up there and I, I ended up from there getting a job as a loan officer at a mortgage company. And I ended up leaving there and starting my own mobile closing company. And But I had developed in, uh, investor relationships. And so I started learning the investing side of things, which I was much more attracted to. So I was always... Now, for nearly 15, for 15 years, I was splitting my year into, you know, coaching and real estate. And so I was trying to build both at the same time because I was dumb enough to think that I could do that. And I'm slow enough learner where it took me 15 years to figure out that I had to pick one or to at least admit that I had to pick one, right? So 
I finally, and at that time, so this is 2012 to 2015 area, you know, 2015, I realized, you know, I'm working at a small investment firm and, and then I really got to make a decision. So I did, I, I just told myself I was going to take a year off and focus here. And so I'm in the fifth year of my year off, but it's been, it's been extremely necessary and extremely profitable to, to gain that focus. What is a mobile closing yeah. So mobile closing is for, this was for refinance closings. And this was primarily done in the, well, the title closers do them themselves now, but at the time, this is the early 2000s boom when interest rates had dropped. There's a ton of refinance closings going on. And I was, I worked for a small company that did, you know, contract closings. We would take the documents from the title closer and drive out to the person's house and we would sign the documents in their house. So instead of them having to come in physically to a title company. Was it foregone though, that they were going to sign the papers before you went to their house or was there, was that not foregone and your job was to close just like the title says? Uh, Right. Usually. Yeah. So the closing in the title of the job is not like sales closing. It's, it's a, transaction closing to which means yes just signing so the idea was yes there the deal is supposed to be closed and they're signing but if you remember how the mortgage industry was in the uh early 2000s that's not always how it worked and so i was thrown into the fire a few times and got to learn really some sales skills and i had to learn. And I knew that some of these were going to blow up. So I, it forced me to know this closing package inside and out and what their rates were and what the whole situation was. And I was able to save a few deals, well, several deals at the table, at the closing table, even though that wasn't really my role. But that got me some relationships with mortgage. That's eventually why I got into the mortgage industry. So you said you were kind of, um, you know, you had one foot in coaching and one foot in real estate for north of a decade. And then in 2015, you decided to do, you said, take a year off. You said turned into five years, which is still going. So I guess what exactly kind of transpired and what is, what is your career been since 2015? Since that time, I actually also left that, that small investment firm and, you know, kind of worked a little bit in uh, residential and investment real estate in that capacity again, but I was really attracted to assisted living because we had we had worked in on a few assisted living deals at the firm that I was at and raised capital for them. And I really liked, you know, the demographic, kind of the statistical makeup of the industry and the outlook, obviously. Um, I don't think there's many that disagree with the strong outlook for that industry. So I really, I really like space. Got it. And, and so what, what was the first thing I guess? And uh, if I'm missing a step, feel free to, to insert. But what yeah. I was going to ask is kind of like, what was your first step in assisted living once you left the investment company? Yeah, I started, I actually was sent, somebody sent me a seller uh, who was trying to, didn't, he didn't get along with his partner and they owned a pretty large assisted living facility together and they needed, they both wanted to sell or at least one of them wanted to sell and the other one was kind of willing. And so I worked on 
trying to put a sale together there. And I eventually decided I'd really like to be the one that buys this one. Uh, and I actually lived kind of close by. So I, I worked on it for quite a while. It was a pretty hairy deal and it ended up, ended up I, I didn't end up getting anything done with it, but I learned a lot about the financials, you know, of these properties and, you know, about the local market for assisted living, you know, or senior housing and, you know, in the Twin Cities. But in the process of working on that deal and evaluating one or two more in the Twin Cities, I came across a guy who was investing in only, he, he wouldn't look at them because he was only investing in outstate Minnesota deal. So only small rural towns. And I thought, well, that seems odd. I mean, I, I, I thought I'd, I'd rather be in the larger market. Well, so would everybody else, it turns out. And labor was cheaper in outstate Minnesota. And so when I started looking at the financials of these smaller deals, they were impressive compared to what the metro, you know, the, the margins in the metropolitan area were tighter just because of the increased competition. And that, that was the one thing that, you know, I was concerned about was the, the rate of uh, new inventory coming into the market. I mean, you might have, you might have the best newest facility in the area, but next year you might have a bigger, more state-of-the-art brand new one right across from you. And it changes your whole competition situation. And so you don't, you don't have that in the smaller towns. When you were trying to put that deal together from the two partners and you weren't weren't able to get it into the end zone, I'll stick with the football analogy sure. here, Justin. Yeah. Why why was that? <laughs> like I said, it was a hairy deal. There's one very, very wealthy partner uh, who had contracted his son-in-law and son as partners. He had allowed them to take over the management of the property. The other partner who's not related to either of them was actually the original developer of the property started once, (laughs) once these guys took over the management of the property, he all of a sudden wasn't seeing any ownership distributions. There weren't any profits and it's, it's because all it's, so it, it became clear that all the money started going to the managers. And so there was really not a lot of motivation on this on the other side of the partnership to sell, you know, until a year or two late. So they eventually did end up selling, but it was, it was a very messy situation and they ended up selling to somebody who I I still think it was kind of a miracle that they were able to put together. I I don't think it makes sense what they paid for it. I, I was not willing to pay anything like what they paid for it. And I think they also ended up not funding the entire thing. It's, I think it's still a mess is my, from what I've seen. So that's probably all the details I could go into about it. That's fine. I was just, it was, it was interesting. So I was really curious. So I guess what was your first deal that you, you took on in assisted living? Yeah. My first deal is I came across you and a broker that I, I had met again through the process of evaluating some of those larger deals and great guy in the, in the industry and had been in for you know, long time healthcare background. He brought me a few small deals in, you know, central Minnesota, two 10 room, 12 possible bed buildings in towns that are about a half an hour apart from each other. And, you know, financials looked great. 
And it was a very, it, it was a perfect deal to start out with. These, these owners were not only very knowledgeable, but also extremely open, transparent, willing to help us out and really made the transaction go well. And, you know, even learned a lot in that process. And we took over a staff that had all the ability we needed to continue operating, you know, without much of our intervention. So fascinating. What year was that? That was 2020. That was actually a year ago, five, yeah, a year and five days ago. (laughs) Okay. 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 So this is a year ago in the two facilities with 10 beds apiece. Yes. Half hour apart. Yeah. 12 beds each. There's two double, there's a, a double in each or two doubles in each room. We don't always use them as doubles, but yeah, they're half an hour apart. You would use the term we. So do you have a partner in that deal or? Yeah, I do have a partner, Todd Dexheimer. And I, once I got these properties under contract, it it was a, you know, my number one choice to call to, to bring, I knew I needed to bring on a partner and Todd was the guy that I called. And it took a little bit of, uh, he had to wrap his mind around it for, it probably took a month of, of back and forth before he finally made the decision to jump in. And yeah, it's been, we've both been in uh, with both feet since then. And then why did you need to bring a partner on it? It may be the obvious, but I'll ask the question anyway. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I didn't have the million and a half dollars in my pocket and I wanted to go a lot bigger than just two buildings. And so I I knew I needed, I was more talented on the operations side and coaching a team. And so I I needed somebody and I had the ability to raise capital, but Todd has a massive network of investors and has a much greater ability to raise capital. Got it. Okay. And and so um, did those two facilities each have like, like what's the infrastructure? Does each have a, a director or like, what, what does that look like? Yeah. As far as an organizational structure, the, and, and what we're finding with most of these smaller properties that we're looking at is smaller facilities, you know, and like I said, the most common story is someone with a healthcare background and they couldn't find the perfect place to put their mom or dad. And so they built it and they ran it themselves. And that was the same. It's the same uh, case with these that we bought. It was a couple and they had been running it themselves. So she was doing the books and he was an RN, managed operations himself. Uh, But he had he had an LPN who was a great leader and had the respect and admiration of everybody of all the employees that work, worked under her. And there is also an RN uh, in the organization that kind of took a back seat to the owner because he was an RN and did most of that work. So when he stepped out and they also had a bookkeeper. And so there was a couple of people working in the shadow of these owners. So when the owner stepped out, we kind of gave just a few promotions of people who were probably already doing those jobs. So our, our structure though, is we have, you know, and right now we've acquired more properties, you know, within an hour of those properties. So we have a regional director who's in charge of the, you know, staff and the leadership and the administration of all properties. And each house has a house coordinator 
who will generally work shifts on the floor doing cares for residents, but they're a little more in an administrative role. And then we have an RN for about one for about every 30 beds is what they're able to cover. And so that RN is an RN for all properties or, or, or for a 30 or a select or for somehow 30 beds, however, it's divvied up across the yeah. portfolio. That's yeah, about 30 beds. We have to work it geographically and with the caseload. So, you know, for we have two properties, the two properties that we started with, one RN can handle those two. It's a total of 24 beds. Uh, so just under 30. But, and then we have a cluster of properties in the Duluth area which is an hour north, one of those properties is 30 beds in and of itself. So that's one RN. And the, and the other three properties are 10 bedrooms or 10 beds each. And one RN can handle those three buildings. Are the people from those first two, did they then stay on the, the person that was a really strong leader and then the person underneath, uh, I forget yes. it was a her or him? Yeah, the the one that I mentioned, the LPN, you know, that was that was their top leader. I think I, we promoted her. She's my regional director. Got it. So that that worked out fantastic. Then it sounds like who handles sales, uh, for lack of a better term. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's really intriguing to me. There's a lot of things about this industry that are intriguing, especially with the smaller properties. But that is, at some level, the RNs have to handle sales uh, because they have to meet with prospects to determine level of care before they, you know, sign to come into the facility. And before we took over, it was almost whoever answered the phone. Their marketing would have a phone number, just a house phone number for the facility. And somebody would just call and say, hi, we're trying to find a place for my mom. And it might be an 18-year-old girl who just started last week who just happens to pick up the phone. And so I thought that's that's not a very good system. So that's one of the first things we started doing is directing, you know, who answers the phone. So it's, you know, ideally it's the house coordinator who takes that call. And, you know, I meet with our I meet with our leadership staff twice a week. And so this is something that I'm able to bring to, I have no experience in healthcare and I make that clear and I don't ever try to pretend to have any healthcare skills, knowledge or expertise. And I don't want to, but what I can, you know, other than just lead, so I lead a team, right? I lead a team of leaders. Other than that, I do have some sales skills and some sales coaching ability that I bring to the table. So in a sense, that was another surprise of how good a fit it was. But I meet with that leadership staff twice a week, and we just do some. I just train all of our leadership staff in some basic, you know, sales and empathy skills that they can use on the phone. Very interesting. And so, as it stands now, if I call one of the you know, one of the houses or one of the facilities for my mom, it just, whoever picks it up is whoever pick, you know, whoever is, is, I mean, is there a receptionist or is it like who, who picks the no. phone up? No. Yeah. That's our administrative staff. We're very thin on number of administrative staff, very heavy on care staff. Right. So what we've done is do we direct all of our marketing, all of our marketing, the phone number that we're putting out there goes to a cell phone a business cell phone that my regional director carries with her. So all the calls go to your regional. 
Yeah, so you're you're going to get her. There are some times when you're going to well be passed to an RN uh, during the process, and you might talk to the house coordinator during that, uh, trying to get a hold of the RN. So some of the the initial conversations are done. Yes, with my regional director. So that we got under control right away. Hey, Street Smart listeners, I'd like to introduce a great partner for you. As you know, insurance is one of the biggest expenses on the P&L. That's why I'm recommending Assured Partners. Assured Partners helps you lower risk and therefore can save you tons of money down the road. They insure over 2 million market rate and affordable units and are the sixth largest insurance property broker in the U.S. If you want a roll-your-sleeves-up partner that blankets you with service, give Robert Band, vice president, a call. Robert thinks like a CFO because he was a CFO for many years. Give Robert a call now at 305-467-5909. You'll be glad you did. What would you say, I guess, operationally are the biggest challenges? From an operation standpoint right now, you're going to be shocked at this, but staffing is one of our big challenges. (laughs) (laughs) So we're putting a lot of focus and energy right now, and actually we're doing really well. We set goals for where we want to be for number of residents first. And and when I talk to my team about what are the what are the top three priorities that we need to hit that we need to take care of in order to reach that goal. And we ranked them one to three. It, it During that whole collaborative conversation, we all determined that the number one thing in order to getting to the number of residents that we wanted to be caring for was to have full staffing to be able to care for those residents, right? You can't have residents if you don't have staff to care for them. And so that's been our focus for the last few months is getting our staffing to the proper level to be able to care for the number of residents we want to care for. And so energy has been going there and the results have been happening. So, you know, yes, it's, it's a different uh, situation out there for staff and uh, for, you know, just the employment situation out there as everyone's seeing, you know, the great resignation and, and all of that. But I, we're putting energy there and, and it's, it's working. There's still people out there who want to work regardless of the story everyone tells. And if you treat people well and you create a culture in your facilities or in your workplace of high performers, other high performers want to come join you. I absolutely love that. Let me, let me tell you. So I was at, uh, last week I was at a, um, an assisted living conference in Houston. Mm-hmm. Um, NI Nick is what it's called. I'm sure you know it. Yeah. And I talked to a couple people and it seemed, and, and, I, and I've had other similar conversations that you know, there are great attributes, which you clearly identified pretty early on about being in smaller markets. Number one, you just don't have the competition. And, and number two, you don't have the cost, right? So it translates right. into great margins. But the other issue that, and I'll, I'll make the statement and then turn it into a question, but the other dynamic in these smaller towns, though, is that you don't have people moving to them. And, you know, I'm sure there are exceptions, but by and large, you know, whoever lives there is whoever is who lives there in this industry is still relatively new and relatively small compared to other asset classes like multifamily or, you know, this kind of thing. And so there aren't a whole heck of a lot of people just at large that 
know how to you know, know these jobs. And so is what you're doing and tailing, you know, just kind of, you know, reaching, you know, reaching out, having tentacles in the community, but understanding you're just going to need to really train people. Yeah. And it it is our, our resident assistant positions are very entry level. And so really anyone who has a desire to care for the elderly, we can train. It's our, it falls on our RNs to be able to, to develop a care plan. And then they train our staff on how to implement the care plan. So everyone that we bring in generally, we don't bring a lot of people that have um, experience in, in giving cares. I mean, some people in, in one capacity or another, they've cared for a family member at times, or they've cared, they've realized that this is kind of what they want to do, but they, most people who we hire need to be trained. How, how do you find them? Uh, we hire from local high schools. We hire from uh, nursing programs at nearby colleges. We have we work Indeed pretty hard, so we have you know ads out on Indeed, and we've got an incredible response on Indeed. And actually, I I have you know kind of like you mentioned a little bit, I, I have defined attributes of the type of person that fits our culture, and we put those in the job ad. And we're clear about that. And I, I think we attract, I think we attract the right kind of people. It seems like, it seems like we are. <laughs> you know, it makes, it's really, really common sense. And, um, you know, I, I mean, and I, and I get it. I mean, you have challenges about the state of the market, but if you're willing to really invest in people and really walk the walk in terms of what the priorities are, I can see where somebody would be attracted to that. I have a hard time believing somebody would choose to stay home if they can do something that gives them gratitude, not, not gratitude, but gratifies them and gives them a sense of, you know, something that's rewarding to do and make differences in people's lives. If you could really transfer Mm -hmm. that. So I, I guess what is it, you know, I'm sure you've already described it, but I'll ask it anyway, is going into these facilities that you've gone into thus far, and I know you just, you just closed a pretty significant portfolio of, of smaller facilities in smaller towns. What would you say is the big value add thus far when you go in where you're like, you know what, I can do A, B, C, or D and immediately add value? So far, it's been operational. Our initial model going in was not we want to, you know, take something that's struggling and, you know, make it, you know, new or, or you know, bring it up to speed. Our, our initial model going in was we need something turnkey, right? Neither of us have any experience in healthcare. And again, like I said, we're not going to pretend to. So we just, we like the numbers and we don't want to you know, we'll probably, we, we're happy to step in and help where we can, but we don't want to be needed. That's not a good thing. So everything that we've looked at needs to be prepackaged for us, right? And managed and, uh, and everything. So we've really had one, we've only bought one property so far and we, we surrounded it with other purchases of properties that were, that are operating smoothly, we had one property that was struggling and, I mean, got a discount on it that we absolutely couldn't turn down. And it was close. It was probably 60% full, significant vacancy. And we, we just, so the problems there were 
operational. I mean, there's just a large national company uh, who mostly operates in large metropolitan areas and had this one outlier in their portfolio that just didn't fit. And they had they just had it because of another company that they had acquired and they wanted to get rid of it, but they were running it on the same model that they ran. You know, this is a 30 bed facility and they ran it using the same organizational structure model and the, all of the same uh, systems that they use to run, you know, 100, 200, 300 bed facilities across the country. Interesting. So we, we came in and it was very top heavy as you can imagine, because <laughs> they had, you know, the same administrative staff as you would use for a large facility. So very top heavy. They didn't, they couldn't be profitable with the structure that they had there, but that's all they knew about how to operate it. So we had to clean house a little bit. And, and most of it was interesting that most of the cultural problems that existed you know, it's not surprising, but it's interesting. They came from the executive director at that facility on down and we got rid of the leadership and everyone got better really fast. And we were able to, and they had some great people working there that now have stepped up into more uh, leadership roles. What's the occupancy at that facility now? Uh, let's see, out of 30 beds, it was, I think actually they had 17 when we purchased it, 17 residents, uh, we have 22 now. So that's in, and that's in what period of time? Uh, we closed on that one in July. Got it. Okay. So that's pretty darn good, right? I mean, yeah. Wow. Okay. So we were talking earlier about how you're handling inbound calls and it's going to a regional and that's where the conversation starts. Mm-hmm. And then I guess the, a connection is made to the RN at the respective facility. Is there anything that you're doing in terms of outreach to bring in residents? Surprisingly, newspaper ads in these small towns are still effective. And maybe it's not that surprising to everybody, but that's one of the first, you know, Todd and I have talked about what's one of the mistakes that we made. And when we say we, Todd's nice enough to say we, it's a mistake that I made coming in is I got rid of the spend on these newspaper ads because I thought, well, that's just a, a leftover and it's no longer relevant. Well, and we found out that a lot of our, actually a lot of our staff and a lot of our residents had come to us because of those newspaper ads and the Facebook ads and, you know, Google ads that we wanted to focus on really weren't that relevant in, in these, in these smaller towns. So we had to get those back. <laughs> so those, this, the small local newspaper ad, you know, the advertiser and, and things like that in rural Minnesota, people see them. And so, you know, and it kind of gives us a presence locally. So we've, you know, marched in local par- parades uh, or had a float in, you know, local parades. You know, we do, we we are on Facebook and we do still run Facebook ads. And I think that at least gets us some visibility and helps with public perception. Uh, but a lot of our residents do. So that's for the private pay, right? Because usually most of our residents are on public assistance, for their, uh, you know, to pay their their monthly cares. Our private pay residents will generally come from those ads or other online ads that we'll do. And then uh, we have several referral sources in, in neighboring counties that we rely on for referrals of residents who need care and need to move to a different facility. On this, and, and I guess I have a window 
into a little bit of your operations more than most of the people you know that might be listening because I'm partnering with you guys. So I know you've you've retained on this new portfolio a, a third party management company. And is it just simply because you know you as one guy only have so much bandwidth, or I guess what is the you know kind of what's the thinking behind engaging a third party? Yeah, there's a couple of different ideas. I mean, I I really stepped into a property management role with the idea of you know, knowing how much I would be able to learn in that role. We we wanted to have a good idea of what's going on at a daily boots on the ground level. You know, obviously I'm not able to be in the properties doing cares, but I'm able to listen to them and, you know, listen to what they're telling me about what they're dealing with on a daily basis. And so that's, that's incredibly valuable information to have. And then knowing what a property manager that, you know, we're, we knew we were going to be hiring property managers. And so what are they dealing with? What are they dealing with on a daily basis? And what should be the expectations of a property manager? What's not reasonable to expect? What's really their role? And how do we evaluate them? And, and so now as we expand into other states and other, other market, other regional markets, I never had an intention of, of managing a nationwide portfolio. I want to own a nationwide portfolio. But the other benefit to hiring third-party management is now I can learn from them. Uh, you know, it's going to prove what I do in addition to, you know, we, we know better how to communicate with them and hold them accountable. Yeah, from the experience that you have. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Makes a ton of sense. What, what would you say, I, I guess... What would you say are your, and this is kind of a little bit of a pivot of a question, a little bit softer kind of stuff, and what would you say are your guiding principles? Yeah, my guiding principles, I mean, number one, you know, if you're talking about core values, number one for me is freedom. I mean, I I believe, and not, not I guess, just autonomy. You know, I still believe, you know, like if, you, if you're familiar with Jocko Willink, discipline equals freedom. I, I believe in that as well but i believe that hum- at a fundamental level human beings are created to be free free from coercion from other human beings They're, they need to be left alone now in our state we need to be governed in some way yes but freedom seems to be about at the top of of what it's what the human experience is meant to be and so for me that's that's tops <laughs> if you're getting at core values. Where does your guiding principles and just your overall sensibilities intersect with the assisted living facility endeavor? First of all, freedom for me and my family, you know, for what I've determined, my wife and I have determined that where we want to go with our life and we've never, neither of us, both of us are unemployable. I and mean, we, we've both <laughs> held jobs for short times. I mean, I've of course worked on high school and college, but I've not been able to, you know, even coaching, that's only part of the year. I, I'm just not employable and that's, I got to have my freedom. I, I need to be the one deciding how I'm going to conduct that. And this, you know, investing in these properties and, you know, owning these properties gives me the ability to do that. So that would be the number one way that, it, you know, I also believe in, the, you know, freedom for the, our residents because, and that's kind of a lot of what's driving the, you know, the mission statement that I 
created for for our business for our and the way that we run our facilities is that our mission is to add life to the years of our residents so not as opposed to add years to the life of our residents where we were just trying to keep them alive and we want to wrap them in bubble wrap and just keep them from not dying well that's I don't believe in that. I believe it violates their freedom. They end up getting treated like uh, cattle where they get herded around. You know, here we need to herd you over to the dinner table and herd you back in the living room and sit down and plop you in front of the TV. And then we herd you into your rooms for the night. And they don't even, it's historically, they wake everybody up at the same time even. So you're not even allowed to sleep and wake up on your own schedule. <laughs> If you live in these places. So we're really pushing, we're turning that around and giving them, you know, the freedom to live their life in, a, in our facilities. You know, these are, are the houses that we own are the places where these people live. And we're, we work where they live. I mean, we actually have that posted on the wall. What would you say is your greatest strength? Um, my greatest Strength. Now you're putting on me on the spot, so that I have to brag about myself. And that's okay. <laughs> my strength, I think, is is leadership. And right now, it's just because it's a skill that I've developed over you know the entire course of uh, my coaching career. I had some great mentors in that, you know, in that respect and with those skills. And then I've intentionally developed leadership skills, you know, because I've been in leadership roles now for quite some time. And so a lot of that now comes naturally. And a lot of these, the decisions that I have to make in a leadership role and how to handle people uh, has, you know, kind of comes naturally. So that's probably my greatest strength in a a business sense. Well, you know, my, my guess would be if you've, if you've managed, you know, football players that weigh north of 200 pounds, you could uh, manage RNs that weigh like 120. Uh, they're more fierce than the, than the, <laughs> the college kids are usually pretty honest with you, but yeah. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Okay. Well, listen, that's all I got, man. How, how does yeah. somebody get a hold of you? Well, you can find me on Facebook. I know, and I'm happy, I'm happy to get uh, DMS on Facebook. I, I don't really, in a, you know, I'm on LinkedIn as well. You know, you can find me, Justin Burke, and you'd find the one that lives in Minnesota. I'm not too private on those things. So I'm happy to get messages on, on both of those platforms. Got it. Yeah. And there are some Justin Burks out there. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, listen, man, this has been a fantastic conversation, Justin, and uh, uh, congratulations on closing this recent portfolio. And um, yeah. man, I know you guys are going to keep acquiring. So we'll circle back maybe in six months or a year and we'll, we'll catch up again. Yeah. I really appreciate you having me on and it was, uh, it was fun talking to you. Got it. All right, Justin. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Roger. Bye-bye.